boom, boom, boom. What's up? And welcome to another episode of In The Area Podcast, your weekly source for wisdom nuggets. Today, we sit down with Ken Shanzer, the former president of NBC Sports. While at NBC, Ken played an integral role in negotiating the network's acquisitions of the NFL, NASCAR, and the Kentucky Derby. He also played a major role in NBC's execution of sound sports rights agreements. Ken is responsible for the deal to bring back Notre Dame to NBC. In today's conversation, Ken shares the story of his career and the principles and values guiding his success. Remember, as a listener of In The Area podcast, you are a worm digging for nuggets of wisdom. Enjoy today's episode and happy collecting. First off, before we kind of go into it, how did you get into sports in general? So just to kind of put the 35,000-foot context of my career, I'm, I'm in the third of three careers right now, each of which matched a passion of mine as a kid. So my first career was in politics. That was for about 12, 12 years. My second career was in sports television. And in my third career, I do nothing. And most of my life, I've been told I'm good for nothing, and it turns out I'm great at it. So this may be my best career. But I, I often get asked, you know, how did you move from politics to, uh, to sports television? And generally the answer I give is that they asked John Kennedy once how he became a war hero, and he said they sank my boat. So in my case, it was pure, unadulterated happenstance and luck. And, and when, when people ask me, you know, how, how you navigate your career, I say you— it helps to be the beneficiary of, of good fortune, which I was. And, and when I was in politics, I, I started to be in, election, in electoral politics, and then I ended up working on Capitol Hill in a, in a congressman's office, and then I left there and became a lobbyist for the broadcast industry with the National Association of Broadcasters. I left that to, to do my last campaign, which was a Senate, U.S. Senate campaign I ran in Pennsylvania in 1976. And then when I came back, I went to work for NBC as a lobbyist in 1976. And I was there until I went back to the National Association National Association of Broadcasters as their chief lobbyist. Um, but while I was at NBC, I met a whole raft of people from NBC, one of whom was at the time running their own stations division but ended up as the president of NBC Sports. And for some reason, he had decided in our dealings that if he ever had the opportunity, he wanted me to work for him. So when I, while I was at the NAB, his chief negotiator announced to him that he was leaving NBC and going to Washington to be CBS's chief lobbyist. And he called me and asked me whether I wanted to come up to NBC and be their, their chief negotiator, NBC Sports, be their chief negotiator. I demonstrated what an extraordinary negotiator I would be by saying, let me check the train schedule. <laughs> I'll be there tomorrow. Wow. And, he, and the guy who left him uh, was very curious about who was going to replace him in his job. And my, my, my future boss, Arthur Watson, said to him, well, I'm not going to tell you who it is, but I will tell you this thing. The trains run in both directions. Wow. <laughs> so he went he went down to Washington to be a lobbyist. I came up to New York and uh and became the the vice president for negotiations of NBC Sports. And I I so I mean the one the life lesson is that that you never know who's going to be the person who who becomes your your godfather. I mean this this is a guy that I had met as a lobbyist. There was one other dealing that we'd had. And for some reason, he was impressed with me and, and decided he, was, he would bring me up. Having said that, I came to New York and I did not have a clue what I was doing. I, I literally, I, for the first three years I was at NBC, at least for the first three years, I was totally faking it. I had no idea what I was doing. And during that time, I got promoted from the vice president of negotiations to the executive vice presidency of the division, which was the number two job in the division. And it was, again, it was at least three years before I felt that I really had an idea what I was doing. 
And it was extraordinary. During that time, people would turn to me to make decisions, which I would make because I had to make it because I wasn't going to say I have no idea. And I was just freelancing. Wow. I mean, as I say, I've been very, very lucky. I didn't get fired during that period of time. (laughs) Did you have a mentor who was advising you on on maybe at the time how to comport yourself? No, the the guy who hired me, who's president of the division, was to all intents and purposes my mentor, and and he and I became very very close. But I'll never forget about a two or three weeks after I came to NBC, I went out to lunch with an agent who I'd just met. That agent told me at lunch, "Do you have any? Do you have any idea that your boss Arthur Watson is about to be fired?" And I said, no. And Arthur Watson was the only person I knew in the division or in the company. I mean, who, who would, and if, if he was fired, I was toast. But what I didn't know at the time that was that this agent was one of the most remarkable people you would ever meet. I mean, because he was always wrong. You could go to the bank, I later found out, that if he told you something was going to happen, you could bet your life that it wasn't. <laughs> but I didn't know it. And he was telling me Arthur was going to get fired. And I'm thinking, holy shit, I just left. You know, I left my home in Washington. You know, I had a good job. I was the chief lobbyist for the broadcast industry. I've moved up to New York. I don't know anybody. I mean, I'm living the life of a hermit. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to the office, staying till 8 o'clock at night. I go home to this apartment that, I, that I'd actually sublet from the guy who took who went to Washington for CBS, and I was going to be out of a job. So it was a that was a pretty terrifying time. But somehow it, it he didn't get fired, and I lasted. And the rest, as they say, is like at what point did you realize that it was an industry you wanted to stay in and not go back to lobbying? Incredibly quickly. It's it's an interesting question because about three weeks into uh, the time at NBC, that's in sports. I, I didn't I had lost a lot of my interest in things that I thought were my lifetime passion. And then I and I dived into this incredible world. I, I mean, I'll give you an example. We about a month and a half after I came to NBC, I was flying, I was on a flight out to uh, California with the president of the division. It was a five-hour flight, and and at uh, some point in the in the flight, he says to me, okay, you've been here a month and a half. Who are the biggest jerks? It wasn't the word he used, but he said, who are the biggest jerks among our talent? And he, so we put a list. We each wrote a list of 10 top jerks, and, right? And we compared them. And I turned him and I said, you know, Arthur, it's an incredible thing. I said, this is a list of people with whom a Two months ago, I would have given him my right arm to have dinner. And we're now discussing which which are the worst of the guys, right? Wow. It was, all men. It was almost, I think it was all men at the time. But anyway, so I, I, listen, I, I told you, I, I mean, I've had three careers, each, each passion. I was passionate about politics for all of my early life. I've been a life, I've had a lifelong passion in, in of sports or with sports. And, and I end up, having one of the dream jobs in the world and a job that I really truly always felt could be done by any number of people. I mean, it, I, I didn't think I was necessarily so special at it. So I, I just, as I say, I considered myself, on the day I retired, I said, to me, somebody's kidding. This is the life I had. Well, what is it like to be a part of the, the television and, and sports community in New York? Well, it's listen, it, it's... It's extraordinary, but I made a decision very early on in my time that I would never get jaded by it. I would never lose my my um, awe at, at having been dropped into this. And it's, I mean, it's hard to describe the the kind of life that you have. You, you I said to my kids when I retired, when I was getting ready to retire, I said, "Just understand, it's over. And we're not." We're not, my calls aren't going to get returned. We're not going to the games anymore. I had a great run. I've seen everything I want to see. And, and I don't be calling me and asking me to call somebody to get tickets. It's not going to happen. We had a great run. 
And it was a great run. You you know, you you I mean, you'd go to a game, you walk on the field before the game, um, you know, you're at the Super Bowl, you're on the you're on the field, you can go on the field anytime you want to go on the field because you got a credential that allows you down there. You're at the Olympics. People ask me if I'd go back to the if I'm going to go to Olympics. I'll never go to another Olympics. I have no desire to go to an Olympics. I went to 12 Olympics in the most extraordinary way that you could go to an Olympics. My we had a my wife and I had a credential that would allow us to go anywhere we wanted to go without a ticket. And so we would come back to our room every night. I've spent most of the day entertaining guests. But then we'd we'd open the book of events the next day. And we'd say, okay, why don't we go see two this these two or three events that we never dreamed of going to? And then we'll meet up with our clients at around two, three o'clock in the afternoon and we'll be with them for the rest of the day. So we'd go to kayaking, uh, modern pentathlon, because we could just walk in anywhere. And there was always an area into which you could walk called the Olympic family area. Um, it was it was extraordinary. Um, and and as I say, I never got jaded. It, I, I, it was, so, I'll tell you the classic moment that defined my life. I've told this story a thousand times. I'm out here skiing. And uh, I'm skiing with a friend of mine in the morning. So I'm on vacation and, and, and I'm skiing. And we go to lunch and the, and the guy says to me, do you mind if a friend of ours joins us this afternoon to ski with us? I said, fine, there's no problem. So we eat lunch and now we go to the bottom lift in Beaver Creek. And his friend is standing there. And standing at the base lift in Beaver Creek is Franz Klammer. Okay, now Franz Klammer is an Austrian skier who is the author of arguably the greatest downhill run ever run. Wide World of Sports used it forever in their opening. It's extraordinary. And, and Franz Klammer is one of the greatest skiers in, in, the, in the history of the world. So I ski, my wife and I are, are on the lift with him all afternoon. A friend keeps putting him on the lift with us. So now we... We're going up the lift the fifth or sixth time, and I turn to him and I said, you know, Franz, I've now skied with Franz Klammer, and I've played golf with Jack Nicholas. If I die, it's okay. And Franz Klammer looks at me and he says, you played golf with Jack Nicholas." And I, I later said to my wife, I said, Lise, think about the life that I've had. I mean, Franz Klammer is looking at me and he's jealous. Wow. So you you definitely have felt grateful in the moments you've def, you didn't take it for granted the moments that you that you had that have been incredible. Not a moment, and then they tried to fire me five times. Probably helps. <laughs> Could you? Nah, you know, I I I didn't know about all of them, but I mean, I but I, I have a very good friend of mine who's a major executive now who was closer to the president of the company than I was, and he attests to the fact that there were at least five times that they they thought they were going to fire me. And they never did. I know one time they, they tried to offload me under some uh, cable enterprise they were starting. And they called me in and uh, a guy says, we, we want you to go run Sports Channel America. And I said, no. And he said, why? And I on the spot, I thought of, I thought of four reasons. Okay. I mean, I, I remember two of them. One of them was I didn't want the commute. And two was, well, but the one that I most remember was, I said to him, listen, the guy who takes this over, the first guy has no chance of succeeding. I said, if anybody has a chance of succeeding, it's the third guy, but it ain't the first. And I don't want to be the first. Anyway, for reasons I never understood, they didn't golden handcuff me. You know what a golden handcuff is? It's something so amazing that you feel like you can never leave it? No, it's where they tell you, 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 you do this or you're gone. Oh, okay. And, and you know, so we're going to offer you a job, but you got to take it. Mm. They didn't do that. And they let me, he said, okay, I get it. And, and he let me off the hook. And I didn't, and the guy who took the job got fired. Ultimately. Was this when you were the executive vice president of negotiations? Yeah, I was, no, I was executive vice president is different than vice president of negotiations. Okay. I was executive vice president. So I'd, I'd, I'd been promoted this this guy had come in from somewhere else and and my boss had was reporting to him it, it was a joke this guy had no business being near sports he was he was the opposite of me he he just this was a guy who just lusted to be a player in sports and in, and instead of 
that's all he wanted to be. He was a jock sniffer of the first magnitude. And you you couldn't be that. In, if you wanted to be a good executive in sports, that's one thing you could not be. Okay, And, and that was something I had learned in Washington. What do you mean by jock sniffer? Meaning you, you couldn't be in awe of the people with whom you were dealing. You just couldn't. You had, I mean, I don't think I ever made a deal with talent who made less than me. So, for example, you couldn't be jealous of what people were making because then you couldn't make you couldn't make decisions. I mean, you couldn't, you know, you couldn't. You'd be paralyzed to make deals, um, and you'd and you'd be, you know, you'd be snipping around the edges all the time. You couldn't be in awe of these people. One and two, I thought it was important that you couldn't get too close to them. So I would. I hoped I had friendly relations with all of these people. But I didn't right, routinely go out to dinner with them and, and didn't try to become great friends of theirs because I was going to have to be dealing with them. That meant I was going to have to be disciplining them from time to time. I was going to have to try to be making deals with them. So, so, so one of my rules was I never would get that close to a, to a talent particularly. And the second rule I had, which I really served me well, in deal-making, I would stipulate to the agents, because you did most of the deals with the agents, I would stipulate to the agents, listen, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna denigrate your talent. Let, let's stipulate at the beginning of this negotiation, your talent's fabulous. He or she is a great talent. Because I'm not gonna sit here saying, well, you want X amount of money and I'm gonna, I wanna pay you less. And the reason I wanna pay you less is that your person isn't that talented. I wouldn't be sitting here if you weren't talented. I'm trying to hire them. So I don't want to befoul the, 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 the ambiance of the negotiations mm. by having me come negative on your talent. I'm not going to do it. So I, I would never say something negative about the talent, ever. And I was not going to try to become friends with them. This guy, you know, he was, he was reaching out to all of our best talent. Let's go to dinner. And he was, it was sending all the wrong messages. It was just crazy. Are, are there any other principles that were guiding how you would handle these negotiations? Did you have any other tools? Like if that if that was a tool in the beginning, you would- the, 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 So I taught this course at Notre Dame and, and in the course, one of my lectures was, it was originally actually two different days, was on negotiations. Um, and, and the only, I mean, so it was a long, I'm not going to repeat the lecture. But the two things I'll, 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 I'll talk about are one- that the most important thing is trying to find common ground. That, that you're not trying to win or lose. You're trying to find a place at which both sides, if it's possible, are realizing their objectives. It's not always possible. But the closer you can get to that, the, the better it is. And, and if that's the case, you can take a lot of the BS out of negotiating. For example... People, people who write books about negotiating always say it's very important where you negotiate. You don't, you like, you want to negotiate in your home turf. You know, you want to do it in your office as opposed to there. BS. If, if you know what you want, you, you don't, you can be anywhere. Okay, as long as you have a real a, a brain. But the second part of it is, and it's a concomitant, but it's the more important piece of it. Okay, and so in the course at Notre Dame, what I would say to the students is, okay. We're going to take a break now for 10 minutes. And when we come back, I'm going to say the single most important thing I'm going to say all year. Okay, If you take nothing else away from this course, I want you to take away what I'm going to tell you when you come back. Okay, So they'd leave, come back, and I'd say, okay. I said I negotiated for 30 some odd years. Okay, And in the 30 years, the single most unappreciated and underutilized skill that I observed in negotiating was listening. Let me put it like I put it to my children. You cannot learn anything while you're talking. I'm going to say that again. You cannot learn anything while you're talking. Think about this. All you can talk about is what you already know. So, in a negotiation, the most critical thing you can do is listen and hear what the other person is saying. Because nine times out of 10, if you do that, you will find out what they're really after. And once you find out what they're really after, you've got a chance of, of striking gold, okay? But if you don't listen, you're not gonna, 
You're not going to know that. So oftentimes in a negotiation, I would go silent, just shut up. And, and what happens with silence is that the other person will fill the vacuum and they'll start talking. And when they start talking, if you listen, you'll oftentimes find what they're about. So Dick Ebersole and I worked together for 21 years. We did negotiation after negotiation after negotiation. We did all the big negotiations. Either I did them alone or Dick and I did them together. He only, I don't think he ever did them alone. He always, I, I was always there. And just to be clear for the younger listeners, can you explain who Dick Ebersole is? Yeah, so, well, I'll, I'll tell you that story. That's an interesting story. But Dick was president, then later chairman of NBC Sports, and I was executive vice president, and then he made me president of NBC Sports in 1998. But anyway, so Dick was, Dick is, is how do you describe it? In the In the history of sports television, there are two names in the pantheon of sports television. And they are Rune Arledge, who ran ABC Sports, and Dick Ebersole, who ran NBC Sports. They're the, they're the only two. And, and I don't think you will find anybody in sports who will disagree with that. They are the two giants. Anyway, but Dick and I would do the negotiations, and, and we would go in, and he would always open, and I would stay quiet for a while, kind of reading the room, listening, and then I had free reign to come in at any time, I mean, we, we had a great relationship and he, he never felt that I was abusing my place. And my job was to listen. It was just to see, listen and observe, you know, watch if he said something, watch whether somebody on the other side reacted. I mean, so, so listening in silence are the most, the, the most extraordinary skills and most important skills in negotiating. That's fascinating. And and recently, there was, there's a course taught by an FBI negotiator. I think he handles hostage negotiations. And one of his points, I'm forgetting his name right now, but he's saying, you're trying to get the other person to say no, because it's a word that people are comfortable with. It's like everyone, you know, everyone, you you want people to say yes to things, but it's like you, you're going out on a limb. Well, I'll give you, but the closing of my lecture on negotiations, the end of it, okay, so the final coda, I would say I had, a, I had a reputation of being a fairly tough negotiator. And most people think a tough negotiator is somebody who says no. No is the easy part. No commits you to nothing, okay? So it's very, yes is the hard thing. Getting, being willing to say yes and getting the other person to say yes, but being willing to say yes commits you to something. Most times it commits you to doing or getting less, doing more or getting less than you thought you were going to do, okay? So yes is the hard answer. No is simple. And, and when you get to that point where you say yes, then the next most important thing is it's over. You go on to the next thing. You've done your best. Next case. Because you got to look yourself in the mirror. And you got to do the next deal. Well, so uh, even even if you felt like you didn't get the maximum of what you were trying to accomplish in the negotiation, you wouldn't dwell on on what just happened. You would just move forward to the next one. You 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 have you have to move on. It, it's listen. Th they say that the the best soccer goalies and NHL goalies are people with short memories. You, you can't have, you can't be thinking about the last goal you let in. Just think you can't be thinking about the last deal. You're going to make good deals. You're going to, you're going to make bad deals. You know, you, your hope is you, you, you did the best that you could do. And often, sometimes the best you can do is a lot less than you wanted to do. Sometimes the best deal is the deal you don't make. You know, Dick Ebersole and I talk repeatedly these days that the best deal we ever made was not making a deal with the Pac-12 that, that was one of the last things we were involved in, um, which has turned out to be a nightmare for everybody involved in it. But, but, but you, you, just, you cannot dwell on your past. It's Wow. So how did you go from being the executive vice president of negotiations to the, the president of NBC Sports? Well, again, I wasn't. I was, I was vice president of negotiations. Then I'm executive vice president. You're executive vice president general. Executive, executive vice president is broader than negotiations. So, 
the vice president for negotiations reported to me as executive vice president. I see. You know, the finance guy reported to me. Oh, I so understand. I was essentially chief operating officer of the division. Ebersol comes in. I mean, comes in and replaces. Uh, this is a cool story, actually. Watson is president of NBC Sports. I think that I'm in line to succeed him when he leaves. And on the day after the Emmys in 1989, I think it's 89, Watson comes into my office. Watson is flitting around, and I'm, I finally say, hey, Arthur, is everything okay? He says, well, and he comes into my office at about three o'clock, and he says, I need to tell you something. He says, in 15 minutes, I'm going upstairs to the uh, President's Council, and they're going to announce that I'm going to become executive vice president of the company, which was a nothing deal. That was a, and that Dick Ebersol is going to replace me as president of NBC Sports. Oh. And Dick wants to see you in an hour. So he leaves, I get on the phone, call my wife, tell her what's going on. She's w extremely pregnant. She's going to have our second child, as it turns out, in, in three days. And uh, she starts peppering me with questions. I said, Lise, I got one hour to get ready. I mean, this guy's coming, you know, this guy's coming in. Hour later... Eversol comes in my office. I look him in the eye, shake his hand, close my door, and I said, let me say a couple of things. I said, uh, nobody at NBC Sports could be more disappointed at this announcement than me. I said, and if I didn't tell you that, there would never be any basis on which we could ever work. I said, but two other things. I said, first of all, you are the best friend of Brandon Tartikoff, who was then head of programming at NBC, of primetime programming at NBC. And I said, and Brandon's the most important person in this company, so that's probably good for NBC Sports. I said, second, you're the first president of NBC Sports to be appointed or to report directly to the president of the company. I said, and that's good for NBC Sports. So I said, so as disappointed as I am, and I am, I understand this may be the best thing for NBC Sports. And if I can do anything to help you, I will. Okay. Talk for a few more minutes, he left. Now we work together. This is in April. In November, I am searched by the Association of Tennis Professionals to be their next executive director. And I go through the process, and it's down to two guys and we're supposed to fly to San Diego to for the final interview. And I call them on a Friday and I say, I'm not, I'm not coming. I'm going to stay. I walk into Ebersol's office. And I said, uh, I need to tell you that I've been, they've been searching me to be head of the ATP. I just called them and told them I want to stay at NBC Sports. He says, well, listen, I'm, I'm glad you told me that. He said, because I need to tell you something. He said, when I was hired, I was told to fire you. And I said to them, I would do that, but first I'd keep you on to learn whatever I could learn from you. He said, so I was in Bob Wright's, president of the company's office last week. And he said to me, you know, what's going on with Shenzer? When are you going to fire him? And Dick said, I said to him, well, I'll fire Shanzer, but if he's not here, I'm not here. And that was the beginning of a very long 20-some-odd-year relationship. And I, I mean, I've said to people that I first worked for a guy who became my second father, Arthur Watson, and then worked for a guy who's my brother, I mean, second brother. I mean, he's, we became really, really, really close friends, worked together forever. So Dick, so I'm executive vice president, Dick's president. I leave NBC to go run something called the Baseball Network for three years. It was a joint venture of NBC, ABC, and Major League Baseball. I'm there for three years. That thing ends. Come back to NBC in 95. And then Dick, 
I was actually searched for a job in baseball to be the number three guy in Major League Baseball running all of their businesses. And they'd made me a very big offer. And uh, so I told NBC, I told baseball that I was not going to go back and forth, that I was going to tell NBC what the offer was and that, you know, I'd invite a response from NBC. Um, and if and if they made the right response, I would stay. But if not, I was coming to baseball. I told NBC. They made a response. response was short of what baseball was paying, but it was a good deal. And I committed to stay at NBC. And Dick walked into my office, and he, after I committed, he says, you know, I didn't know whether you were going to do this. He said, and I didn't want to put this in front of you before you made the decision, but I told the company that if you stayed, I wanted to become chairman and I wanted you to become president. And that's how I became president. So wow. that was pretty cool. What, what do you think it was in, in the moment when Dick went to Bob Wright's office and was like, "I'm I, if, if Ken leaves, I leave. What do you think it was about the relationship that, that compelled them to say that? You know, we... <laughs> I've been very, very, very lucky in my career um, at, at having guys, having bosses, all of whom understood the following proposition, that my deal with them was I could close the door at any time and say to them what I thought. And they knew, absolutely knew, that our conversation would never leave that room. So they always knew they had one person. I, I, could, I wasn't necessarily always right, but they had one person who would look them in the eye and tell them the God's honest truth. But Dick would do stuff from time to time. He said, Dick, what are you doing? Why are we doing this? Right? And sometimes he'd say, because we got with this is what we're going to do. And other times he'd say, you know, that's not a bad point. Okay. But he knew I wasn't going to walk out of there and say to people, see, I got, I convinced Eversol to do this, okay? And I think he knew that that was a very special relationship and I would never violate it, which I never did. He, there was always one person whose loyalty he could, he could always trust and loyalty did not mean following what he did. It, it meant being his friend, being his confidant, you know, always being there to give him my best advice. Now, hopefully, and hopefully, my advice was good, but it was it was that honesty. And in my my career, I I always felt my single biggest failure as a manager was that I never created a, a me. I mean, I never created. I, I was incapable of getting people, anyone, to serve the role for me that I served for Dick. Hmm. That was very frustrating. But, you know, part of it is to do that, you you have to sublimate ambition. I mean, I, I, mean, I never loved, by, I tell you a great story. We, Dick and I and our families were together in a, he had a home in uh, on the vineyard. And we're riding to the, uh, to the beach. And my son, Thomas, is probably, let's see, Tommy is, He's probably 10 years old, 11 years, 11 years old. And he's nagging me about something. I don't know what it was, but he's nagging me. And Dick, who's driving the car, Dick says to Thomas, Thomas. And he says, what, Uncle Dick? And he said, Thomas, do you know why your dad is president of NBC Sports? And Thomas said, because he's good at his job. Dick said, yeah, he's good at his job. He said, but... That's not why he's president of NBC Sports. He's president of NBC Sports because he never asked to be president of NBC Sports. It's a great lesson for Thomas. Stop asking. You may get what you want. But I never, I, so I wasn't, I mean, I was satisfied in the job. I, I, I knew I was working for somebody who was really, 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 really talented, really, really, really smart, one of the smartest people I've ever known, one of the hardest working Okay, one of the most decent in a lot of ways. So I, so I had sublimated my ambition, and I could be his. It was our relationship was so terrific in that regard that there was a time that Dick was contemplating retiring. 
And I don't remember what he was going through, but for three successive days, we walked through Central Park and we were talking about it. And I, I remember, I'm not going to repeat what I said to him in my final kind of analysis of it, but understand, if he'd left, I was going to succeed him. That was clear at that time. This had moved to the point at which I was going to succeed him. But he had enough faith in me that I was going to give him my best advice, notwithstanding that I could be a beneficiary if he left. And that was the nature of the relationship. Wow. And I think when you work for people, if you give them that loyalty, you get it back. And so through your career, you've maintained truthfulness and integrity, and that has served you extremely well. Yeah, incredibly. I mean, I, I, listen, truthfulness is easy. To, you are or are not truthful. That, it's simple to claim truthfulness. Integrity is a little harder to claim. I mean, I would like to believe that I had integrity, but I, but I, I'm loath to to claim it because mm. it, it's, it one, it's much more elusive to identify. I mean, I, I have one story that I that I tell about that. That, but I, I I'll tell the story, but I I, I wonder sometimes whether. Um, this is absolutely typical of everything in my career. But we made a deal once with the PGA Tour. And I don't forget, we made the deal, we, we concluded the deal on a Thursday. And Tim Finch was the PGA commissioner. He came up to New York to do deals with all the networks. So we finished the deal on a Thursday. Dick and I had made the deal. And on Friday... We, we went back to his hotel suite to sign an MOU, an Memorandum of Understanding. So we walk in and we look at the, the paper. And I, this just shows you also a relationship between Dick and me. I said to Tim, without saying, without saying to Dick, let's go talk. I said, yeah, this isn't right, you know. He said, what are you talking about? He said, I said, this doesn't reflect our agreement. He said, yeah, it does. I said, no, it doesn't. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, you have us paying $32 million for the following. And we agreed to 36. We looked at <sighs> Dick never complained. Dick never, ever complained about it. He, he was fine with it. So about, I guess, three or four years later, we're negotiating the next contract. And we'd done the big deal, and now one of the guys who works for me is negotiating the contract itself, all the, all the individual pieces. And so he and, and a guy who worked for Tim is, you know, is doing it for them. And they were loggerheads on something. And uh, I guess my guy says to their guy, well, ask Tim. And they went to Tim, Fincham. And Fincham said, ask Shanzer. Whatever Shanzer says we agreed to, we agreed to. Wow. So that's integrity. Well, I mean, I'd, yeah. I mean, I'm sure there are times I probably wasn't so, so great. But. Wow. And the, and, and the reason... And, but you always get it back, I'm telling you. If you're decent with people, you get it back. <laughs> Jeez. So I'm wondering generally how your life changed as you became president, how you, what your day-to-day -day looked like as a president of NBC Sports. It didn't change a great deal. Being president... It was it was more a title change than it was a job change. I'm still the number two guy in the division, but the key part was Dick. Dick was a great boss, and he. But let me go back to where it started because it, this becomes really important through my whole life, my whole career. So, when I came to NBC Sports, the executive producer of NBC Sports was a legendary guy named Don Olmeyer. Don Olmeyer had been the uh, director of, of Monday Night Football. He, he was a towering figure. And NBC had stolen him from ABC, and he was our executive producer. And when I come to NBC in 81, I mean, he is a legendary name, okay? And about a month after I come to NBC, we have a meeting 
So it's all the major executives, president, executive producer, executive vice president, a guy named Jeff Mason. Anyway. And the meeting is to discuss upcoming talent contracts, what we're going to do. So it's, we've got a list of all the contracts that are up, major on-air talent, production talent, what they're making. Okay, We're going to go through what we're going to offer them. And I don't know, and I don't know Omar. I mean, I've met him and he's working, I've worked there for a month, so I've interfaced with him, but I he's as big a name as there is in television. Okay. Anyway, and he's and he's tough, very tough. And I had heard that he had kind of emasculated my predecessor. So we're in this meeting and we go to the we hit the first talent on the list. And we're talking about what we should pay them. And uh, so Omar says, we should pay him a buck and a quarter. So I said, okay, fine. And what happens if they won't make a deal at 125? He said, will you come back to me? I said, oh, no, no, no. I don't come back anywhere. What we need to do in this meeting is you give me a number beyond which you're not prepared to work with him. And we walk. I said, because I'm not coming back to see anybody. Because if, if that's the deal, then you don't need me. Okay? So you tell me where I can walk. It, it may have been the best, other than actually that moment later with Ebersol, which was a, that, that opening meme was a great moment. It was the right way to do it. But that moment with Omar set 30 years in motion. From that time on, no one ever, ever was able to go around me to anybody else in the division about a deal. They couldn't go to the president because the president would say, no, no, Kenny does the deals. Olmeyer, because he had said what the number was. Okay. And so it never happened again. And, and Dick, so Dick invested me with extraordinary authority. He, he, and he would back me up. He never once... He was the president. He was the chairman or the president. I just want to clarify, what quality does that demonstrate? Just so anyone listening could think about it. And it was in 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 it was combination of trust, but it was also a, it was the conferring of authority. It was delegation of authority, and but delegation of real authority. In my case, they I had enormous authority conferred on me by Dick and Arthur, his predecessor. And, and in 30 years, 30 years, they never, not one time, ever undermined my position. I mean, if, if, if I said to them, this is where we are, and I walked, nobody would go, could go around the division, go around to the president and later the chairman and say, well, we, you don't want this, to, this guy mm -hmm. to leave. They said, we, that Kenny makes the deal. Wow. Because otherwise that would eat away at you. Then I had no authority. You have, the minute this, anybody could go around me to them, right, to Olmeyer as executive producer or Watson or as president, Ebersol as president, later chairman, then th I had no authority. Then I, I was, you know, I'd been cut off at the knees. It never happened, wow. which was extraordinary. Um, but it was, I mean, I hope I was good at what I did, but- you know, and it didn't make a lot of mistakes, but if I made a mistake, they backed me up. Wow. And so that set the foundation then for you transitioning into the president role. Yeah. I mean, Dick, I, I, yeah. I mean, it was, it, I, I had a lot of areas of, on which I had dominion and oftentimes it was, it was the stuff Dick didn't want to do. I'm curious. Can you take me just through a day in the life like what do you like? What are you waking up super early? Or, like, how, well, that's another cool thing, by the way. You know, th interestingly, yes, I, I woke up. I, I lived in Connecticut, so I would get. I would take the six twenty train from Connecticut. So I was up at five thirty, and and uh, sometimes it was early when I was working out at home. I'd get up at five and work out, and then and, you know, they get the train at six twenty. But interestingly, th th again, it's a lesson for for young people. The first two people in the office at NBC Sports, any day they were in town, 
were Dick Eversall and Ken Chancer. We were the first two people. We would talk to each other all the time. Don't, don't other people notice? Don't the people who work for us notice that when they come in, the two of us are already here? We, you know, we would, I mean, if nothing else, if you were the other per, another person who was there early like we were, you'd get time with us. Your career would be advanced. Nobody. We were, all, we were the first people in. We were the, the last people out. Okay, now what? We both loved what we did. But, but that amazed us. Just amazed us. Um, so yeah, so we'd get in, you'd get in very early. Um, I'd get in very early. I'd have a lot of time with Dick. Over the years, Dick and I spent an enormous number of hours together. So in the office, we had, our two offices flanked the office of his assistant. But there was a door that, there were doors that, that opened on each of our offices. So you know, we didn't. You, I didn't have to go out in the hallway to go to his office. It was literally right across the his secretary's office, and we would spend. He would come into my office. I would come into his office. We spent. I can't tell you the number of hours a day, um, and and what that did was allow us not just to do what we had to do, but to think forward about where we wanted to be. Because the biggest, listen, the biggest thing that major executives can do is be ahead of the game. And, and, and we were ahead of the game all the time. So part of it because we talked constantly about where we were, the relationship between what we were doing and where we were going. Someone once said to me that, a, a rights holder said, nobody's close in playing the game but you guys. I mean, you guys are the best guys at playing the game. And that was manifest in, in our ability to make deals even when we weren't necessarily the highest bidder, that we would find ways to, to manage the system to get, get ahead of the other guys. Um, that doesn't mean we won all the deals we wanted to make. We didn't. But, but so, so that, the, the, the kind of conceptualizing was an, an incredible part of where of why we were successful at doing what we did. Wow. Did, did you have rules about, like, how, did you feel like your life was balanced at the time? Did you have time to do other things in addition to work? Yeah. Yes. Um, and a lot of, listen, a lot of that was was helped by by him and his commitment to his family. But um, first of all, if we spent, if we spent three hours or four hours together in a day, I will tell you that Forty to fifty percent of it was on non-sports. It was family. It was theater. It was books. It was movies. It was. It was just the wide range of life experiences, which which bonded her or bonded us in a lot of ways, which was really helpful, you know, in our business that we were that well bonded. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I listen. Did I spend less time? with my kids than, than I wish I'd spent. I mean, I traveled between 160 and 180 days a year. Yeah, I mean, I wish I'd been around more. But that, but you couldn't be in, you couldn't be successful, in my view, you couldn't be successful in sports if you didn't do that. You had to be where the stuff was being done. So we were on the road all the time. So there's sacrifices or, or trade-offs. Yeah, that's, I've, I've, Dick and I have talked about this. It, it's that's changed a great deal, and I'm, I'm and maybe for the better. For people my generation, your job was the most important thing in your life. I mean, you you it, it fed your family, it fed your ambition, your ego. Okay, so it was the central piece in your life. Um, that's not so true anymore. And I and that may just that may be fine. It was my wife was at home more. She had a she had a business of her own, but she was her business was up where we lived. And my job was to hold on to my job and and do it well and 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 progress and and earn more and provide a better lifestyle. Um, as I say, I think some of that today lifestyle seems to be somewhat more important than it was to to us. 
But I was just, I was the way I was raised. Well, just evolving values. Yeah, it means change. It's a lot, by the way, a lot has changed, but, you know, some things are being changed, you know, right now as we go through this thing. It's changed a lot of people's attitudes about a lot of stuff. And we'll see what happens and how, we'll see what the duration, I probably won't be around to see it, but, but you will. We'll see the duration of it. I mean, wow. Do you feel like when you reflect back on your life that it's been successful, that you, you, have, you are successful? I had a, I had a great run. Um, I, I was asked once, I was, I was giving a speech at, uh, at my college, and uh, I was asked the question, is there anything you regret? I said, I have one regret, one regret only. I, I regret that I didn't make more money so I could give more of it away. I mean, that's my great regret. I, I, I didn't, yeah, I did fine. I did really well. Not fine. I did really well. Other people did better. And if I had done better, I would have been able to be more charitable, which I'd love to do. And I, but it's fine. <laughs> I, I, I'm not, listen, I'm not complaining about anything. So well, I've had a great run. How do you define success? I mean, it's, it's, I think it's being being happy, doing things that you love. Um, in my case, I told you I had, a, I had an extraordinary run. I I spent my life doing the things that I loved as a child. I mean, when I was in college, I was maybe the only person on the campus at Colgate University who literally read the Congressional Record every day. I got I had a subscription to the Congressional Record. I loved politics. I loved legislative politics. So that was, and between that and and reading the sports page, those were my passions. I ended up spending the next 40 some odd years in those positions and end up as president of NBC Sports going to, you know, going to every event you could imagine and the best way you could. It was, and then I ended up as a ski instructor. I mean, with a ski bunk. Who are some of the most interesting people that you've met in your career? Wow. Well, Scully's one of them. I mean, Vin Scully I mean, was is easily the greatest baseball announcer in the history of the game. So, I mean, he's the Babe Ruth of baseball announcers. Literally, the Babe Ruth. Um, and you, you would not find one dissenting voice in America, literally. You, I've never seen one person deny that. Okay? And he's godfather of my eldest. There are just a host of people who, with whom I did business. Um, you know, every commissioner. There, there was a moment, it was really interesting. Dick Eversall got the Lifetime Achievement Award for uh, Emmy. Okay. And his assistant and I were trying to decide what to do to make it special. And so we decided that we would invite all of the commissioners of major sports. So it was Bud Selig, Roger Goodell, um, Tim Fincham from golf, David Stern was commissioner of the NBA, Brian France was uh, um, NASCAR, Am I missing anybody? Oh, Gary Bettman, hockey. Okay. And it was my job to get them to come. And so I picked up the phone at 9 o'clock in the morning and called all of their offices. And by 11.30, they all had committed to go. So, one, they'd all returned my phone calls, every one of them, and they had all agreed. And I said to my wife that night, I said, listen, it was amazing that we got this done for Dick. It was a surprise. Dick had no idea it was going to happen. And it was really pretty cool when all these guys start walking out on stage. But, I mean, these are the, the kind of the chieftains of American sport. And it was, you know, I'd, I'd been able in no time to do it. And it just said where, where I was in some respects as, as much as Dick. Wow. Um, so I think I thought all of those guys were really interesting. I, I have I have favorites. Interestingly, one of my favorites was Jerry Jones. I, I loved Jerry Jones, who 
I don't think Jerry would take umbrage if I, if I say Jerry was a rogue. Jerry was a guy who'd look you in the eye and he'd say, "Listen, I'm going to take every nickel I can from you. I mean, I'm going to I'm going to jail you." Wait, who is Jerry Jones? He ran. He runs. He owns the Dallas Cowboys. He's kind of most. He and Bob Kraft are the two most famous NFL owners. But Jerry. So Jerry would look you down. He said, I'm gonna, I'm, he wouldn't say it, but, but you knew that's who he was thinking. I'm going to get every nickel you have. But the deal was, once that was done, there was nothing in the world you could ask Jerry to do that he wouldn't do to help you. So I, I adored him. I thought he was just extraordinary. I mean, and, and I, I, it was his job to, to get as much as he could, and I got that. It would move heaven and earth to help you. Um, so I mean, I thought... I'm just trying to, I'm trying to, I don't, you know, it's, it's a question I get asked a lot and I, I never, sp I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it because it was just, it was your life. You, you know, if you're in it, you don't think about it. Do you know what I mean? You just, you live it and you enjoy it and you're, you're, you know, I, I think about it more when people ask me about X person or Y person and then I think about what they were like and what they were like with me. Um, mm. I don't, I, I don't step out. I mean, it's funny. Sometimes I'll be going through my, 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 my contact list. A lot of whom have gone, unfortunately, but I'm just, I'm looking at all the names of the people with whom I've done business over the years. which is pretty cool. Man. And you were saying the commissioners, when they walked on stage, that was a cool moment. Each one. It was really cool. Dick was really blown away by it. It was the, they never appeared. They had never appeared together as a group. Wow! So it was it was a, an immense tribute to Dick that they all showed because um, he, again. But as I said to you, there was there are two guys in the pantheon, and he's one of them. Uh, how do you how do you see the future of sports television, sports broadcasting? Well, it's interesting. It's it's changing. It's I came into sports, so I came into sports in 1981. It's hard to believe it's 40 years ago, but 1981. So when I come into sports, it's, it's, it's tele, sports television started in 1939. That's when the first telecast was made. So when I come into sports, it's, it's 32 years old, okay? So by the time I leave sports, I've essentially been in it for half of the time it's existed, I was there for 30 years. So out of 62 years, I was there 30. And it changed dramatically. So it, from the time it starts, when there are three television networks, not even then, but later on, there, there are two then, but they become three networks. But when I come into it, there are three networks. And the year after I join NBC Sports, ESPN is founded. Okay? So it doesn't exist when I come in. Fox doesn't exist when I come in. Okay, so over the time that I'm there, ESPN becomes a juggernaut. We can talk about the founding of ESPN, which is really interesting. They become a juggernaut. They change the economics of the game dramatically. And you think that they're eternal, and we are now at a place at which they're dramatically losing subscribers and, and they're forced, as everybody in the business is, to be moving towards streaming and we'll see whether streaming can figure out the economics necessary to sustain the level of rights that have been paid initially by the networks and then by the combination of the networks and the cable guys. And now we're going to streaming. So in my heart of hearts, I think the NFL has just made the last deal they'll make with television networks. It's an 11-year deal. But it's, I won't be here for, to see whether this happens, but I don't think so. I'd love to be, but, but to see what the next deal is. Um, but it is unlikely in my mind that it's going to be with the networks. It'll be with some other variation. And we don't know what it's going to be yet. We really don't. Could be streaming, could be anything. I'd love if you could talk about the founding of ESPN. Well, it's real. The founding of ESPN is really fascinating. And, it, and it, it's, I'm reading a book, an author I love named Bill Bryson. He's a fabulous author, writes, and he writes very eclectic books. And the one I'm reading right now is about the body. And uh, in, in his section on microbes, he talks about 
Alexander Fleming, who found, credited with finding penicillin. And the discovery of penicillin occurred when Fleming, who was a researcher, went on vacation. And when he came back, there were some spores in his, in his laboratory that hadn't grown. And the reason they hadn't grown was because the penicillin bacteria had, been, had, had wafted onto them. So it was a totally accidental discovery. Okay? Totally wow. accidental. Anyway, so in 1982, a man named Bill Rasmussen lived in Connecticut. And he loved UConn basketball. But he wasn't on the air. So he decided that he would try to figure out a way that he could, by satellite, deliver, because satellites now are just starting, at the, uh, communication satellites. He's, he's wondering whether he could rent a couple of hours a week, requ- the number requisite to to air um, the UConn basketball games. So he's going to need four hours of satellite time. So he goes to see RCA Intelstat. This is the RCA company's communication satellite. He goes to see them. And he asks how much it would cost for four or six hours to do it in a week. And he gets a number. And the number's much larger than he thought it was going to be. So he's leaving. And as he's leaving, the guy with whom he has the meeting says, by the way, I don't know if this is of any interest to you, but it would cost you exactly the same amount of money to rent the satellite 24 hours a day as it would to do the six hours. And Rasmussen thought to himself, Oh, I wonder if there's something I could, if I had 24 hours a day that I could do. And that was, that's how ESPN was founded. Oh my goodness. And ESPN was originally the entertainment and sports programming network. That's what ESPN means. So it wasn't initially going to be a sports network. It was going to be a combination of sports and entertainment. So what what sports were being broadcasted in the wee hours of the night? Then nothing. They, they created it, and initially they had they had garbage. They had nothing on the air. It was, you know, they had, Australian rules football was a big deal to them in those days, and 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 their economic model was 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 ridiculous. Their economic model was advertising. That's how they were gonna how they were gonna succeed. I'm gonna close with this. What time is it? Jeez, we've gone two and a half hours. See, and we didn't even get to my. Uh, I, well. We didn't even get to my career. But anyway, <laughs> any any deals? But but this is the this is actually a really interesting story. So they're they're going to be an advertising supported medium. And Don Olmeyer, I talked to you before, and another guy were meeting with them. With Don Olmeyer and a guy named Ross Johnson, who was who was the CEO of. Uh, um, R.J. Reynolds, yeah. They're meeting with ESPN, the guy named Bill Grimes. And uh, Omar says to Grimes, so when you, you know, what's the relationship between your sub fees and your advertising fees? When do, the, when do they cross? And uh, Grimes said, no, no we're going to be advertiser supported forever. That's the deal. That's, that's what's going to work. Omar says to Johnson, he says, can we walk outside for a second? And Don walks outside. He says, these guys don't have a clue. They have no idea. They think it's going to be advertising supported. We need to buy this. And I believe they bought a piece of it. They didn't, get it, they didn't buy all of it, but they bought a piece of it. So here's, here's the ESPN numbers. It's, it's the most extraordinary, and it's changing now. It's, it's starting to change. But here's what it was as of two or three years ago. ESPN does 
like a, they do a nightly rating of about a little under a one, one rating, okay? And they do a monthly cumulative audience of about 25%, okay? They, they take in, let's just use, they've taken more now, but look, the time I, I started talking about this, they were taking in around $8 billion a year with a B, $8 billion in sub fees, okay? You know, when you pay your monthly bill to your cable company, ESPN gets around 7 or $8 a month from the cable company. They're a highest paid sub- subscriber service in, in cable. So they take in about $8 billion a year. Okay. Of the $8 billion that they take in a year, $6 billion of it comes from people who share one common characteristic. Okay. So what do you think the characteristic is of the people who pay the $6 billion to ESPN? I mean, what, what do you think? One common characteristic. Of all the people who watch ESPN Sports? The people who pay for ESPN Sports, $6 billion of it comes from people who share one characteristic. Wow. Oh my, what do you think the characteristic is? Oh, man. Uh, Let's just take a guess. They love sports. Okay. This, okay. As I said to you, they have a monthly cumulative audience of about 25 25%, okay? M- meaning what? What does that mean? means, well, I'm going to tell you in a second. The $6 billion comes from people, all of whom never watch ESPN. The, the common characteristic is they never watch ESPN. Their monthly cumulative audience is 25% of the audience, okay? That means 75% of the audience never watches, Okay? And of the $8 billion they collect, 75% of it, $6 billion, comes from people who never watch. How does that happen? Because the cable bill that you pay, you pay $100 or $200 a month, includes, in in your tiers, it includes ESPN, who are receiving $8 a month for every subscriber that your cable company enlists. Packages the ESPN into. So so they... so, wow. And I would teach this at school. I would say to them, in ancient times, the alchemists tried to make base metal, gold out of base metal, tried to turn lead into gold. Okay. And they failed. ESPN are the modern day alchemists. They've turned non-viewing into $6 billion. So when a television network tries to bid against ESPN, they don't have a chance. I mean, because ESPN's resources are... Are, are limitless. That's why. That's why ESPN pays more for football, NFL football, than NBC, because they're deriving more revenue. Because ESPN, NBC can only charge, they can only get get in revenue what their eyeballs deliver. So they go to an advertiser and say, I'm getting a rating of this many people. I want you to pay Y dollars, and that's the relationship. ESPN comes in, and they're going to get advertising revenue, but they're also going to have all this money from people who don't watch. Wow. So that, but that, that has now changed. So ESPN has begun to lose subscribers. Their numbers are going down, and they're moving over to streaming. For the moment, they'll combine the two, right? Um, but that's... To the world, it's changing dramatically. Yeah, are we uh, almost done. Yeah, here? yeah, yeah. Sorry, I, you, I just we, I, we have never talked about anything that we. But it's fine. What? Uh, well, I, oh, man, I, I, I we're done. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Well, I've tried to give you lessons for your people, and you absolutely have. And and Ken, I'm so grateful to you for for coming on the podcast. I've got a million more questions, but I know that you're ready to leave. We can do it another time. Okay. Ken, thank you so much for, for coming on today. I do hope that we can sit down again because there's a lot more to mine. And uh, I hope you have a wonderful day and I'm so excited for this to get out there. Cool, thank you, man. 